You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Get chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Uh, feel free to follow along in your Bibles at home, um, or the word should also be on your screen. This is Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword. And the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. Hey all, my name is Michael. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. I'm one of the pastors. Scott, thanks so much for those Encouraging words you read to us there. Um, imagine with me a, a castle and a princess. The night is dark and the night is filled with drama. Lightning crashes and rain falls as to mirror the tears of the princess in her despair. Her attempts at freedom have come up dry and she is finally without hope of escape or rescue. Then at once, a knight and his noble steed come on the scene, bursting through the gates. The knight slays the dragon. He defeats the guards, and he reaches the high tower. He swoops in, and he sweeps the princess off of her feet. They pause, but for a moment, to acknowledge the scene. She knows he has come to rescue her, and she is, for the moment, safe in his care. He whisks her away to safety, 
down the winding stairs, through the busted gate, all the way to the countryside. It's finally safe to lock eyes for that ever-after gaze, reluctant at first. Her pleas win, and finally he takes off his helmet. He has an even better view of her beauty, and she locks eyes with Shrek. Although we aren't princesses, and we don't live in castles, all of this makes sense to us. This story, this lead-up, it, it makes sense to us because it meets a deep yearning inside of us. We have a desire for rescue. We want a, a good hero and, and good leadership that cares for our own interest. And sometimes we're, we're not even sure what we want rescued from. For some of us, it might be just the, the boring monotony of life. Like we want rescued from, from the, the, the cubicle life. And, and for, for those of us who, who want rescued from monotony, it's, it's maybe an island adventure that, that in our mind would be the rescue that we're looking for. Or, or for others, we have fear. And so for those, peace of mind would be the rescue. For some, it might literally be external, you know, bad guys around us. And, and for others, it might be ourselves that we, that we need rescued from. We self-sabotage and we destroy anything in our life that's good. And, and for those, it might be the dream of confidence that we would call rescue. But we all long for rescue that delivers peace. And in searching we come up empty. We want to be secure and we want peace to reign within and we want peace to reign without. But where the record scratches and where the story comes to a halt for all of these desires and when we, is, is when we see the face of the unlikely hero. This rescuer, he is unlikely and he is unexpected. He does not fit the part of our fantasies. We are not conditioned for such heroes, but we are conditioned for such epic tales. Through Micah, God gives a glimpse of the nature of our rescue. And although this was lived and, and, and written 2,700 years ago, it brings us to, to three important questions that each of us have even today. In a world in need of rescue, we have an unlikely hero who brings peace. And three questions that help us process that today are, are who are we rescued by? What are we rescued from? And what are we rescued for? So we've been journeying along in, in Micah, and we're in the fifth chapter. There are just two more left after this. And, and so over the last month, we've been looking at this, and, and uh, we'll kind of get the setup as I read Micah chapter 5, verse 1, and it will help us kind of set the context. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel. Right? There is some disrespect going on. And what we see is, is God is telling his people, now the divided kingdom, Israel to the north and, and Judah to the south, the, the once united 12 tribes of Israel are now divided up. And, and what he's saying is judgment is coming. 
But what it will look like to you is defeat at the hands of your enemies. That's what Mike has been saying for, for four chapters now, that judgment will come from the Lord and it will look like defeat at the hands of your enemies. The Assyrians are coming and they're, they're sacking the north and they're at the gate to the southern kingdom. So what this tells us is, is you are not primed to engage in this battle. You are not equipped to engage in this battle. And so there's, there's the, the, this word that they use, troops, he says. Uh, the the uh, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And, and really what this is laden with is, is condescension. The word troops is, is a decided downplay versus like an army, like a real army. And he says, daughter of troops at that. So he's taking shots and he's showing them that they are not equipped to respond to, to the impending judgment and the assault that's coming their way. You cannot save yourself. Look at your meagerness. Salvation is not within your hands. Rescue will not come from you. But then, after this, we see this contrast of hope. After judgment, after the exile that, that God will bring them into, God will surely deliver. God will surely rescue. And so we get to ask question number one of three. Who are we rescued by? Well, the obvious answer in our context is the mighty, the brave, the towering figure who dominates the battlefield, right? The, the high school quarterback, that's who we're rescued by. The credentialed general, the valiant warrior, the big personality with even bigger biceps. That's who we are rescued from. And in fact, that's exactly who Israel wanted to lead them. A few hundred years prior to this scene, God was the king of this tribe called Israel. And, and as they were united together to be a, a kingdom, a, a real nation like all the other nations, they wanted a king, a human king. And they appointed a guy by the name of Saul, and he was a head taller than the rest. And, and he looked like a mighty warrior, just like they would expect. But God gave them Saul to teach them that what the human heart wants isn't always best. They had a king, and their king was God, and they wanted a human ruler. So what we see as we read on in, in verses 2 through 5, But you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So he's saying there will be one who comes in the future who actually comes from the past, from the ancient of days. And then we skip down in verse 4, he says, and he shall stand, right? Which is the opposite of, of a poor king who would, who would merely sit. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. He will be involved in their life, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great unto the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We see that peace shows up in the form of a person. 
there will arise a leader to rescue, a ruler to save. He will be from old, from ancient of days. He will stand and he will shepherd the flock in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. He will rescue. And when he does, they will dwell secure because he will be great here and to the ends of the earth forever. Micah is telling the people that they will be rescued, that they will have a leader rise up and he won't look like they might imagine. In fact, the references Micah is making, they go both backwards and forwards. He's pointing to, to one who was and to one who will be. Backwards to the king that God chose to replace Saul, a man by the name of David. And David was not perfect by any means. In fact, if you think that when you read the scriptures, that what you'll find is, is perfect men and women doing the perfect things of God, then, then you will be sad when you open up this book. Because it is anything but that. But, but even so, David is considered to be a man after God's own heart, even though he, he didn't always uh, walk in the ways that he ought. So King David, he's revered by Israel as having ruled over the United Kingdom. right? And I'm not talking about England and, and Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales, the, the modern United Kingdom. But, but God's kingdom, remember, now is divided. At this point, it was one when David ruled. And what we see in, in 2 Samuel, we see this promise of this line of David, King David. And what we see is, is one from his line would come from Bethlehem. That is the city of David. That's where David came from. And later on, Bethlehem would be called the city of David. And, and what this t says is, is, your house and kingdom shall rule before me forever. So they know the history of God's kings. They know the history that, that they walk in, and there is one who is to come from the line of David who will rule forever. Now, that doesn't make any sense in, in normal uh, understanding, but, but, but David wasn't always the favorite. See, before that, in 1 Samuel, God's prophet Samuel, he was tasked to anoint the new king to replace Saul. And so, he gets a tip from the Lord that he will come from, he will be a seed of Jesse. He will be one of Jesse's sons. So he goes to Jesse's farm and he says, Jesse, one of your sons will be king. And Jesse says, well, okay, like let me get the firstborn because it, it has to be him, right? And so he puts him before him and, and he's stunning and he's the firstborn and, and all the power and all the family wealth will go to him. And, and what we find out is that, that he is one of eight but this is what God says to Samuel as he's trying to figure this out. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now there is a load of, of image stuff that this simple line cuts through for us. But uh, that, that God is not about the externals, all right? But, but as the story goes on, God tells him, he tells Samuel, he's not the one. And, and so Samuel basically says to Jesse, well, well, what else you got? And he goes one by one by one by one and finally gets to the seventh one, the perfect number. And guess what? He's not the one either. Do you have anything left? And Jesse tells him, well, there is one more. He is the smallest Right? He is the youngest, and in fact, he's tending to his chores as a shepherd 
in the field. One commentator said that the story of David becoming king was a male Cinderella story. David was attractive, but he was a little runty, right? He was, he was the last one. Um, it's not that God can't use anyone that he wants, but, but it's that he isn't obligated and, and God almost always delivers unexpectedly. And he finds that David is the one, which, which cuts at the grain of the world, especially in this time where the, the oldest son got all the money and he got all of the power and the most beautiful women got the men with the money and the power. So for David to be called king was, was to go against the world in which they lived. But what we see is that God brings about a reversal of values. He does it over and over again. Everywhere in the Bible when God brings rescue and salvation, he does it deliberately against the world's values. Now, some of you who, who aren't rich in your biblical studies might not recognize all of these names, but here's what I'll tell you, that, that the first one was the prime candidate and the second one got the job over and over again. And, and so uh, this is a quote from Tim Keller. He says, God chooses Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Moses, not Aaron, old barren Sarah, not young, fertile Hagar. He chooses unlovely, unwanted Leah, not gorgeous Rachel, to bring salvation into the world. He always chooses the girl that nobody wants, and he always chooses the son that everybody forgets. See, the Lord tips his cards. He's revealing his nature. He's showing how he operates. And, and these little things that when you add them all together, they, they become a big deal. He builds his kingdom through the mastery of unexpected and unlikely heroes. That's what Mike is pointing them back to King David. But he's also pointing them to the future, to a time in which they do not no, all of this leads us to the cross that Jesus bore, the greater, more distant picture God is painting, is, uh, that, that he's using Micah to do, is, is the future work of another king from Bethlehem, one who sits on the throne of David. He comes from the small and insignificant. There is no one near him with a line of nobility. He's, he's born in a stable, not a castle, as a servant, not with servants, but he does hail from a kingdom. And he indeed does have royalty in his blood, the likes of which no other human king ever has. Not only is he of the line of David, but he is God, willingly sent from eternity past, from a place not even found on the maps of the earth. God births an everlasting king, mighty counselor, prince of peace, and Micah, God's prophet. He has the inside track. And so, so much of what he's saying is, is here and now and also to come, and I can't end this section without talking about this movie, A Knight's Tale, 14th century um, knights and, and jousting and, and all kinds of stuff. And there's this guy played by Heath Ledger and his name Ulrich von Lichtenstein, right? And that's a made-up uh, made character name. Even in the movie, they make up the name. And so what happens is this guy is a peasant. He comes from a poor family. But he wants to compete 
And he's a good jouster. So he gets on the horse and, and, and he jousts. And, and to enter into these tournaments, he, he, he finds some old knight armor and it looks terrible compared to the others. And he finds a guy, the writer Jeffrey Chaucer, and, and he writes the patents of nobility for him to be a fraud, to him to get into the tournaments claiming some line of nobility that he never had, right? And so at one of these tournaments, he, he goes against this other guy who turns out to be Prince Edward. And Prince Edward, he was masquerading just the opposite. He was royalty, but he came down to the level of a peasant so that he might engage in these battles. And so he tried to remain anonymous, but whenever anybody found out who he was, they would always just bow down and secede the contest. And so Prince Edward would win without even getting to battle. But when he, against, when he went against Ulrich, Ulrich didn't know uh, all of those things that he was supposed to do, so he just went after him. He went after Prince Edward, and he got whooped, all right? Fast forward sometime later at the end of the movie. Ulrich is in, uh, you know, he's in the, the shackles, he's in the stocks, his arms in there, his head in there, and death was going to be the result for his lies, People gathered all around. And finally, three men in, in, in robes and hoods, they take their hoods off. One of them steps forward to address the crowd, and it's Prince Edward. And this is what he says. Release him. He may appear to be of humble origins, but my personal historians have discovered that he is descendant from an ancient royal line. This is my word, and as such is beyond contestation. Now, if I may pay the kindness you once showed me, take a knee. By the power vested in me, by the power of my father, King Edward, and by all the witnesses here, I dub thee Sir William. All right? When I watch that scene, it brings tears to my eyes. God is the God of reversals. That's what he does. He brings himself low and he lifts his people up that they might be exalted. Paul says it this way, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This God of reversals is the God of our rescue. This is who rescues us and his name is Jesus. Well, the storyline of rescue demands a need greater than one's self. When we call for help, we acknowledge our own inadequacy to deliver, to rescue ourselves. And hear me, this is a uniquely Christian theme. We are not in the place of rescuer by our works, by our power, by our money, by our strength, by our wisdom, or by any other means that this world offers. Our only offering is trust in the only one who can rescue. That leads us to the second question. What are we rescued from? <clears throat> we see this in verse 5 and 6 and and, and it looks like this when the uh, Assyrian comes into our land and he treads in our palaces. Then we will raise uh, against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. All right? 
So we, we aren't held captive in a high tower. Most of us, if you're listening to this, you are not held captive in a high tower. There isn't a dragon outside most of our doors. Then what do we need rescued from? What do we need saved from? And, and what I, I, I believe is true is that this is perhaps the best question for our context of comfort, the context in which we live. So we have preachers afraid to acknowledge and call people from sin because we all have it all. It's so easy to live the life that we live and not think that we need rescued at all. If we have comfort, we have money, what else could we want? The reality is that despair brings about dependence. But when we have soft comfortable, good lives, we are so easily duped into thinking that we are good and we are safe and we are secure and we are not in need of rescue. So in short, Micah tells us that that God is intervening to save from two things of which we cannot save ourselves. The first one is God is saving from the wicked which surrounds and so that is, uh, it, it's, it's on delay because of, of God's judgment, but, but Assyria and the type that Assyria represent is coming and there is no escape, right? That's been the drumbeat of Micah, that, that the Assyrians will attack you and you will be uh, succumbed by them, right? They will, they will rule over you. You will face judgment from the hand of God through the, the warring nations around you. God saves from the wicked in the world around us. And what he says is, is you will rise up against them. God saves from the wicked in the world around us. In fact, he came to overcome that wicked. And the second thing, God is saving from the wicked which flows from within. This is the reason for the external judgment to begin with. Because of internal sin from us, individually and collectively as God's people. See, corruption doesn't just come upon us. It flows through us. And for those in Christ, we have to understand this. We have to understand that that we are born with a corruption about us that rebels against God. That's what we've been talking about for a month plus now. And that's what Mike is bringing God's judgment against. But this is what God says to God's people. He says, God will cut off your horses from you and, and destroy your chariots. Right? He, he will take your, 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 war, your means of war and he will take your luxury uh, your, your SUVs from you, right? He says, uh, he will tear down the strongholds of your city, the things that you think make you safe. He will remove your fortune tellers, the wicked who, who point you in the way of truth, false truth. I will cut off your carved idols, the, the, the false gods that people make with their own hands and then they bow down and worship. He says, you'll bow down no more to the work of your hands, which certainly shows up in the fact that they craft idols with their hands, but, but for us in context, we literally bow down to the work of our hands. We worship that which brings us income and safety and security and all of these things. 
And God says, I will avenge the nations that do not obey. Hear me. All that sounds really dark. But, he, but here's the deal. When you look at those things, because our rescuer is good, right? not in spite of it, because he is good, he will remove the false saviors of his people. The things that we trust in for security and peace that can never satisfy, that can never deliver peace to us. He will destroy those things. And it is grace all the while. I had a conversation with, with Kelly O'Donohoe, one of our, our own, right? And, and we, we were talking about this text, and, and she said uh, that, that God will rescue from expectations and from our enemies and from ourselves. And in this chapter, we see this full on, an unlikely hero, right? Delivers us from our expectation. It peels back the layers of what we think our hero, our rescuer might look like. And, and what Mike is saying is it won't look like you think. He will not be draped in, in purple robes of, of royalty like you imagine. He comes from a, a different kingdom, and he brings about rescue in ways that, that you can't even imagine. And, and then uh, he dashes our enemies, right? We are saved from our enemies. When the Assyrians tread on the land, he says, I'll raise up shepherds and princes to rise and then defeat them. Defeat them. And he dashes our idolatries. All the things which we cling to for security and peace. Only those who have a transformed heart, those who have been rescued by this servant king who laid down his life to give us life to the fullest, only us who have a transformed heart can look at these things and call them good. See, God loves us so much that he won't tolerate us playing with poison, that he won't tolerate us running into traffic on Main Street that he won't tolerate us holding wickedness close to our heart or, or worshiping things that will break our hearts. When we see all of this, we can draw some conclusions. God might not always save us from our earthly burden. In fact, he tells us just the opposite. He says, if you follow me, take up your cross and leave everything behind. If you follow me, they will hate you. If you follow me, you must come and die. And when you do, when you forsake all of the other things, then you will find life now and forever. But our earthly burden might, in fact, be used to give us what we ultimately need. When we look at King David's life, he was a shepherd and... and um, one, one commentator talked about that, and, and he said um, David was being prepared for the work ahead of him by being a shepherd. It wasn't in spite of him being a shepherd, but he was a shepherd, and he had to defend the sheep against lions. And what that did is it prepared him to fight Goliath, and it prepared him to lead God's people. That's the way that God works. He prepares us because God is a servant shepherd king. He protects us from sin's work outside, and he purifies us from sin's work 
inside. And he invites us into the one day when this will unfold. And because that day isn't yet today, he rescues us for something, even this very day. And that takes us to the the third question. What are we rescued for? I have been a Christian, a follower of Jesus for some time now, like 25 years, which is crazy to think about. Um, and I've interacted with many Christians over those years, and, and, and this is what I know. Many Christians could describe who saves them. They could point to Jesus, and they might not get all of the details right, but they could point to Jesus, and they could point to a cross and a humble, suffering servant, the good shepherd who lays down his life that we might live. And, and I know of, of many Christians who, who might even be able to describe from what they are rescued. Sins demand judgment. And again, they might not get all of the the theological nuance and details, but sins demand and judgment and, and God being a God of justice. He poured out his, pours out his wrath on all of the wicked. We are wicked and Jesus takes our place absorbing the full wrath of God and giving us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's beautiful. But what people often miss is, is what they're saved for. And if not in theory... Certainly in practice. God's people aren't saved and rescued to merely exist. We, we are not saved from our sin within and from the, the, the sin outside of us. We're not saved and rescued to merely exist or, or to just wait until the new heavens and the new earth descend and we join God forever. Now we are saved for a mission that begins the day that we join God's family by faith. We, we are rescued to join the rescue. Literally, Israel's role in the Old Testament was to be a lighthouse, a beacon of good to the dark nations surrounding them. In a world in need of rescue, we have an unlikely hero who brings peace. We are rescued by this unlikely shepherd king so that we might put his goodness on display in unlikely ways. What, what the Bible says is we get to live for God's glory and we get to enjoy him forever. That's what we get to do. So we get to reflect the, the glory and the goodness and the nature of God to those around us rather than being judgmental and obnoxious and self-righteous. I'm not saying that's what Christians do or who they are, but but I, I sort of am. Like, we are just really good at that. We are, we are great at being judgmental and obnoxious and self-righteous. We get to put love on full display, living as if we have been rescued. And when we know that our rescue came not at our own hands, but because of the, the sovereign grace of our servant king, it shapes us to be people who walk in joy and who walk in love. And the most unexpected way that we can live in this life is to not live for ourselves, but to live for others. We get to do that moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, life by life. 
It doesn't mean that we get to love others and put ourselves in, in harm. And I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we get to live our lives with a mindfulness that we get to, as the Bible calls us, to esteem others better than ourselves. In fact, God's rescued are the plan for the kingdom of God to grow. That is as humorous as it is when Micah says that these troops, daughter of troops, will rise up and, and around them will, will be like a lion. That, that is humorous. We can't rescue. But what we get to do is we get to be salt and light. That's what the scriptures teach us. That, that's what Jesus tells us that we get to do in this life. We get to be salt. We get to preserve those around us. We get to uh, make the, the world around us taste better. We get to be light in dark places. We get to go and make disciples of the nations, telling them who Jesus is, that he is the rescuer, what he has done for them, and how we might walk in his ways. We get to proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel because God has made himself known. The suffering, humble servant, shepherd, king, Jesus. No, we can't rescue but we get to point others to the one who can, to the one who has, the one who does, and the one who will. We do that in many ways, right? Sure, we get to follow Jesus, and we get to know his voice, and we get to teach, and we get to live in light of it. We get to tell others, but there's this idea in Christianity that we should be a joy to our neighbor, that we should be like do on the ground for the farmer, that, that we should be like water, like streams of, of living water to those around us, that we should be a blessing to those around us. And here's how Micah, how God inspires Micah to say these things to us, what we get to be saved and rescued for. He says that the little runt Israel, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations like a lion among the beasts of the forest. That is certainly unexpected, considering what's happening to them. Like a lion among the flocks of sheep. What he's saying is, is God's people will have victory. And then in verse 7 he says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And so what that means is in, in God's timing, this is going to happen. The word remnant that we keep seeing Micah talk about over and over again, it, it's simply used to refer to, to God's people, those who continue to walk with God, sinners whom God has saved. They're not some separate group who need to keep themselves withdrawn from everybody. That, that is not the type of rem, remnant that they are, but they are to preserve. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. God's people are going to live among them. So we see these truths like we are sent into the world, but we are not of the world. And, and we are saved from the world, but we are sent into it by Jesus himself, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He describes this remnant with the image of dew or, or rain showers. And, 
You probably know this, but in the Old Testament, certainly, and, and even in the New, somewhat, rivers and streams and rain and showers and, and dew, all those things are, are agricultural metaphors that, that simply refer to, to the blessings of God. Now, it rains a decent amount around here in Ohio, but in the Middle East, the Middle East is arid. It is a desert place, so having any form of water was a blessing. God's people are called to be a blessing and a benefit to those who are around them, their neighbors, their society, their community, the culture at large. It's easy to forget in a world where truth has lost its footing and where when you look around, you just, everything that we take in and we see and we hear from the world around us, it just, it doesn't make any sense according to what we know to be true. Or maybe it, it makes perfect sense according to what we know to be true. But, but it's easy to forget in that culture, but, but it doesn't change our call to love well. That's what God's people get to do. In Psalm 1, there's this beautiful contrast of the wicked and the righteous. And, and what the psalmist says, it, it's one of dozens of places that, that use this analogy of, of water as God's blessing. Its conclusion is this, the one who delights in the ways of God, the one who delights in the law of God, the one who walks with the Lord, he is like a tree planted by the water, right? And the indication is that it is healthy, that that he is steadfast, that he has established roots that can with, withstand and endure, and, and he bears fruit in season. We overlay that with what we know about Jesus, and, and we know this, that Jesus is the bread of life. And, and if we drink of him, we will never thirst again. This is the security and peace that people long for, that we long for, and we have the answer. So we get to be planted by the water, and we get to bear fruit that others can see and taste, so that they too might be drawn to the fountain that never runs dry. In simple, we get to be good neighbors to those around us. In a world of terrible neighbors in a world that lacks understanding, that fights for individual rights and privilege at the expense of others, we get to care for our neighbors and we get to advance good wherever we can. And for real, I close with this. Kim and I got married 20 years old. I was 20 by 12 days when we got married. We Worked a bunch before that, and, and we saved up some money and we went to Jamaica on our honeymoon. And as we were there, we had a conversation with this guy who worked at the, the place where we were staying, and he told us that the fruit of the trees in Jamaica, uh, that, that would just be in random people's yards, it was not the fruit of whosoever yard the tree was in, it was for the community. And, and we got off uh, the kind of campus we were at, uh, a few times the, the resort, and, and we saw people just walking through. And, and the idea is that, that as someone walks through someone's yard, which for us 
is not an option because we have privacy fences and, and, and this just wouldn't happen. That's not okay for us in America. But, but as they just walked through people's yards and they were free to grab fruit off of any of the tree and eat it as if it were their own, it was for the community. Look, there's no urban garden association. Uh, there was no legality involved in this. It was just common good of neighbor. Christ rescued, get to join the rescue in many, many ways. But for us in times such as these that we live, we get to take a cue from, from the local Jamaicans and we get to produce from our life fruit worth taking by those around us. We are rescued that we might join the rescue. We are rescued from within and we are rescued from without to point people to our great rescuer. Man, I hope that we can be a people who love our neighbor well. In a world in need of rescue, we have an unlikely hero, and he does bring peace. In just a moment, we get to reflect and, and uh, repent and respond, but right now, would you pray, me as the, pray with me as the band comes up and we continue to sing and song? Father, thank you for your goodness for your grace. Thank you that you come from humble origins. And even so, you show us what it looks like to live humbly. God, thank you for being our unlikely, unexpected rescuer. Would you let us join your work? Love well. We love you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.